Let's turn to the 11th Psalm this morning. Um, I um, was, uh, throughout the week, and to be honest with you, the, the sermon that I was preparing in Matthew chapter 13, I just, I just couldn't wrap my, my thoughts around it. I couldn't quite ascertain or discern how the Lord wanted me to present that for you uh, that week. And, and usually if I come, I'm a big believer that, uh, that cloudiness in the pulpit equals fogginess in the pew. And so if I'm not clear on a text, then I certainly don't want to bring it to you in that condition. So, um, so this morning I thought, you know, I'll, I'll just share. Uh, I try to, I don't do it every morning just because of the busyness of the flesh and such. I, I do try to have a time of meditation every morning uh, on a particular uh, passage of scripture in Psalm 11. Just happened to be uh, one of the ones I meditated on this morning, specifically verse seven. And um, I just thought I would share some of those reflections with you this morning um, and uh, maybe even get out a little early. I don't know. I don't want to get your hopes up, but uh, maybe even a little early. We got a lot of tired people here, a lot of tired people here. So uh, I, I crashed at about nine o'clock last night and I woke up at 8.15 this morning. I was here at 8.45. So, so anyway, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty intense. But we're looking at Psalm 11, verse 7. For those of you who um, have not been here in a while since I've preached from the Old Testament, when you're looking at your text and you see the word LORD in all caps, that is actually the personal name of God, his covenant name that he's given to us. And so when I read the text aloud, you can see it with your eyes, but if we're reading it, you, you don't hear a distinction between LORD and LORD. And, and so I go ahead and say uh, our LORD's name whenever we're reading, just so you can hear the distinction. So, uh, so don't be surprised when, when I do that. Um, the 11th Psalm, chapter, uh, chapter seven. The 11th Psalm, verse seven, simply says this. For Yahweh is righteous, and he loves righteousness. The, up, the upright will behold his face. As I was looking at that this week, it, it just, uh, there's something about that passage, that verse that just jumped out at me, and I spent some time with it just reflecting on it. There's three clear strophes that you see there. Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness, and the upright will behold his face. And I guess beginning off, it just starting to think about how to reflect on this, in what ways is our Lord righteous? What are some of the ways that, that he reflects his righteousness toward us? And what are some of the righteous ways that he does toward us? And, and for starters, we, see, we know that our Lord is absolutely holy. He is absolutely holy. In fact, uh, John chapter one, 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 says that, that God is light and there is no darkness in him whatsoever. That is to say that there is absolutely no corruption. There is no uh, deceptiveness. There is nothing in him that does not fall under absolute moral purity. There is nothing in him that is, that is questionable about him. You know, I don't know that you realize how much of a big deal that was in the ancient world because for many in the ancient world, that 
their gods that they worshiped, they were, they were basically spoiled brats who were changing their minds all the time. And they basically had to beg them and beg them and beg them. We see this. And if you're familiar with the story where uh, Elijah is taking on the prophets of Baal and, and they're just begging Baal and they're sacrificing and they're, well, not sacrificing, that's what they were trying to do, but they're cutting themselves and they're doing all of this stuff to, to try and get Baal just to listen to them. And, and that's what the pagan gods were like. You never knew if a pagan god wanted to listen to you. One day he may decide he likes you. One day he may decide he doesn't. There is nothing like that in our God. He is absolutely consistent. He is morally righteous and he is 100% right all the time. He has established holiness and goodness in the world. Every good and perfect gift is from our Father of lights in whom there is no variation whatsoever. He is thrice holy. It's the only attribute of God that is repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. You may not know this, but in the Hebrew language, they don't have superlatives. Do you, you guys remember what that is? Put on your grammar cap from grammar school for a moment. Do you remember what superlatives are? It's like, for example, good, better, best, uh, um, uh, bad, batter. <laughs> Obviously, I remember grammar school, so <laughs> bad, worse, and worst. And then if you, well, Hebrew didn't have that, so the way that they conveyed that was that they would repeat the word. It was, it's holy, holier, holiest, and if you really wanted to say that, man, this is the best sanctuary on earth. This is the best church on earth. You, you couldn't say that in the Hebrew language. You didn't have that vocabulary. So here's what you had to say. You had to say, this is the church of churches. This is the sanctuary of sanctuaries. And our Lord is the Lord of Lords. He is the most absolute best Lord. Righteousness is that that flows out of him beyond um, it's, it's more than just something that he decides on. It's more than just something that he pursues, but it is something that flows out of him. His nature is that of righteousness. He is internally righteousness. He is good. Therefore, goodness flows from him. Righteousness is determined by him. He looks within himself and sees his own character and that is how he determines what is righteous and what is evil. You may remember in the garden, the temptation for Adam and Eve was to be like God, knowing good and evil. How, how does God determine what is good and evil? That which is consistent with his character is good. That which is not consistent with his character is evil. And Adam and Eve, it wasn't enough to be created in, their, in God's own image. He, they wanted to basically be God. And therefore they sinned. And now that is the temptation we have. We want to look within ourselves and we want to say, this is right, this is wrong. And we make ourselves the standard. And the truth is, God is the standard. He is the absolute standard. That's what righteousness means. It means to 
hold to a certain standard, hold to a certain conduct, or even be in a right relationship with a person. And we gotta be careful with that because because when we look at who God is, there's a temptation sometimes to say that God is absolutely righteousness in the sense that there is some standard by which he holds to. But beloved, there is nothing higher than God. There is nothing, there is no standard, there is no law, there is no rule, there is no moral uh, absolute that is higher than God. Righteousness flows out of him. He is the standard. He is the one by whom we appeal to. That's why I love the Westminster Shorter Confessions definition of sin. What is sin? It is any disobedience to God's law and any want of his character. Any way that we disobey God and any way that we are not like God. God is loving. So therefore, when we are unloving, we sin. God is merciful. Therefore, when we are unmerciful, we sin. God is patient. Therefore, when we are impatient, like driving with our family from Colorado to Batesville. <laughs> we are impatient, we sin. So this is who God is. He, what ways does he show his righteous ways that he loves those who are downtrodden? He loves those who are oppressed by sin. Beloved, if you are here this morning and you are you are just beaten down by the choices of your past or you are beaten down by the choices of others that they have acted against you in the past, I want you to know God loves you. And he is not the kind of father. He is not the kind of friend that maybe you've had in the past that has so disappointed you. Our God is a loving father. And that is one of the ways that he shows his righteousness. He, he has love for those who cannot help themselves or he has love for those who, cannot, who do not have a voice to defend themselves. He loves those who are in prison. He is concerned about those who have no way out of their predicament. And boy, isn't that all of us? Before we come to know Christ, is that not every single one of us? That we have no way out of our sin. He looks after and he loves his children. He disciplines those whom he loves in order to bring about a harvest of righteousness in our lives. Hebrews chapter 12. He protects his own so that nothing outside will touch them, can touch them. That's really the context of what we see in Psalm 11, that he displays his righteousness in that he defends those who are in danger of those from the outside. And then he punishes the wicked. And yet he chastens his own children. I had a pastor one time who was always, this is just one of his things. You know, every pastor kind of has their thing, right? You know, and uh, one of his things is that he was always, uh, God does not punish the Christian. He chastens them. He disciplines them. He punishes the wicked. So he does not punish us. He's not out to get us. He's not like a Greek pagan God who's ready to lightning bolt us the second we do wrong. But he is a loving 
merciful God toward us. Nothing outside of God's will can touch us. He is our defense. He's our strong tower. And he is our hope. He loves to give good gifts to his people. Our father is a kind and generous God. He's almost indulgent in the riches that he gives to us, how he, how he, how he just and ravages us with gifts and grace and kindness and mercy. And oh, how many times we forego that because we think we can find something more satisfying in the world. Oh, how often we mistake his goodness for something else. He has a holy hatred of sin and yet he has dealt with it decidedly. He has found, you know, uh, uh, even something that the psalmist did not understand how God can be both merciful and forgiving and yet not hold the sinner unguilty. And passing on that sin and that guilt, how he can forgive and yet hold them accountable. That is a tension that the, New, that the Old Testament never solves. But what we find solved in the New Testament, that God in the perfect, the perfect holiness of his justice and yet the perfect holiness of his grace and mercy sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that his perfect justice and his perfect love come together in Jesus Christ. That's a tension the Old Testament can never solve. That's a tension no false religion can ever solve. But that is the wonderful grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How deep the Father's love for us. And so he has made a way for sinners to become righteous. And we that were his enemies, now we are invited to his table as his adopted children. Our Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. That's the second strophe of the poem. He, he loves righteousness. There's, a, there's a, it's not exactly the same word. It's got a different ending on it, which is why the ESV and, and I believe the NRSV translates it. He, he is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. He loves righteousness. There's, he loves those acts and thoughts and those attitudes and lifestyles that reflect his character, that reflect him. When we practice righteousness, we show others what God is like. When we practice holiness, we demonstrate his character to others and he, he loves that because it glorifies him. He is absolutely devoted to his own glory. And when we demonstrate his character, that glorifies him. And when he accounts the very righteousness of Christ to our sinful condition and he puts our sin on Christ, now when he looks at Christ, he sees his holy justice poured out and he is glorified. And yet when he looks at us and he sees Christ's perfect righteousness on us reflecting back on him, he is glorified. And so he loves righteousness. 
He loves righteous deeds. And when we live in such a way that shows his righteousness to others, it is, it is a reflection of his glory. It is a reflection of his inner character. And it glorifies him. There is no higher. Oh, that, that wonderful first answer to the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The, the constant and always present chief end of our lives is to glorify God by which we then enjoy him. Don't fall for the lie of Satan that says in order to be happy, you must be unholy. That is a lie from the pits of hell. Why do we keep believing it? Because it, it still works. Satan has not changed his tactics, believers. Satan has not changed the lies. It's still the same old lies. Still the same old heresies and new dresses that come and reveal themselves in different ways. Why does he not change his tactics? Because you don't break what's not broken. You don't fix what's not broken. They still work, even in our own lives. And beloved, when we demonstrate anything other than his character, we are, in a sense, taking his name in vain. And we are blaspheming him. Every time we sin against another person, every time we, we act in a manner that is inconsistent with our God, we take his name in vain. We blaspheme his character. Beloved, if someone knows you are a Christian and yet you act like the world in front of them, then that is one of the most damaging and reviling things you can do. That's why, that's why Paul says in Romans that they have given the enemies of God great opportunity to blaspheme. When we give the enemies of God, when we give sinners an excuse to look at us and say, see, that is why there is nothing to their God. Oh, what dishonor we bring to our God. Oh, what shame and reproach we bring to the name of Jesus Christ. And so you must always live in consistency with him. He, he loves righteousness. I, I, I love the... Um, I love the illustration. I always think of a two-way mirror. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen a two-way mirror before, but on one side, you see your reflection, and on the other side, the person who is, who is on the other side can see through the mirror, and they can actually see you. It makes for some really funny stories sometimes. Beloved, I think of the Christian life as a two-way mirror that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ reflecting back to him and he is glorified. And yet when the world stands on the other side of us and they see us, they see through us and they see the character and love and grace of God and thus they, God is glorified. And that our entire lives point to God both for him and to him. I can't help but to wonder if that's the point of the passage that says, for unto him and to him and for him are all things to his glory. Every time I read that passage, I think of that two-way mirror, that my life is meant to be a reflection of God's glory to himself 
and a a glass by which the world can see his glory. Either way, he is glorified. So he loves righteous deeds. And then finally, he says the upright, which is, by the way, is a different word. The upright will behold his face. We've mentioned that our God cannot just simply let sin go. He is a God of justice. He is a God of, of, of righteousness. And that very righteousness that we celebrate today requires that sin be dealt with, requires that sin be held accountable, requires that sin be punished. And that incredible tension that the Old Testament can, can never solve, and yet we find in the New Testament that he has found a way to take those who are sinners and to declare them upright before him, to declare us righteous, even when we are not. And then through the power of the Spirit, he then begins that process of making us righteous and making us fit for heaven. A person who is unfit for heaven will not enjoy heaven any more than they'll enjoy a church service. A person who is unfit for heaven will be just as out of place in his presence as they are in church. But oh, beloved, he has made a way for you. He has made a way so that he gives you everything you need for life and godliness in this world and the next. That through Christ, you are able to behold his face. Moses could not even do that. Ezekiel could not even do that. All of the greatest prophets could never behold the face of God, and yet we behold his face in the glory of the face of Jesus Christ. To see Christ is to see the Father. To know Christ is to know the Father. And to come to Christ is to come to the Father so that we may know him. In Christ, I have a standing before God. In Christ, I have peace with God. In Christ, I find mercy in God. In Christ, I find my security with God. And I find that he is absolutely good. I love that line in C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan, they are talking about the children are talking to Mr. Pevensey, I believe, who's who it was. And they were asking him about Aslan the lion, who is a representation of Christ. And they say, is, is he quite safe? And Mr. Pevensey says, safe? He's a lion. He is not safe. But he is good. Beloved, Please understand, our God is not safe to any sinner walking on the face of the earth. He is not safe. He is to be feared. He is, to, he is frightening. He is not safe, but he is good. And in his arms, we find safety. 
That is our God. And when we come to Christ, we will behold his face. And beloved, maybe you've already come to Christ this morning. I want you to understand that this text applies to you too. That if you want to commune with God in the full benefits of your covenant relationship with him, you must also live uprightly. Our God's arm is not so short that it cannot save, but that our sin erects a wall between us and him so that he will not hear. It doesn't say he cannot hear, but it says he will not hear. And this morning, we commune with him through our confession of sin. And he says that every time we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us for all righteousness. And that is when we can commune with God. Oh, how often we must confess and live uprightly so that we can have that benefit of communion with God in our lives. So many Christians walking around, walking in defeat, walking in shame, walking in sin and habits they cannot defeat. Why? Because they will not go to Christ and the cross and lay it at his feet. But they are still convinced that there is something in this world that can give them greater joy in communion with our God. Oh, give up that foolishness. Give up that. That is a fool's errand. And instead, rest your souls on Jesus Christ. He is perfectly righteous. He loves righteousness. And the upright will behold his face. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I would love to show you, to teach you how you can know Christ. How he is the son of God, the only begotten son of God who came to the earth and lived that perfect standard of holiness and righteousness for us that we could, we could never live. And then he died on the cross in our behalf. He died on the cross for us. He took the wrath of God in our place. And it didn't end there. But three days later, because God was satisfied, because the father was satisfied with the sacrifice of his son, he rose him from the grave. Now Christ has ascended to heaven as the reigning king of the earth and he is offering himself to you as a rescue from your sin, as a deliverer, as a savior. So will you come to him this morning? Will you find your rest in Christ? Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Come and lay your burdens down. Jesus calls you. Jesus loves you. Rest in him. Our Father, we thank you for these thoughts this morning. I, I know they are brief. Yet, Lord, I pray that even in our weariness of the weekend, even in our readiness to gain some rest before our work week begins, I pray these words have been impactful. I pray that you have touched the hearts of your people this morning. And most of all, Lord, if there's one here who doesn't know you, I pray that they will seek to know you before it is too late. Let's stand together and sing.
If you have a need this morning or you're here and you want to know Christ, you're here and you just want to pray, you can come forward, seek counsel, prayer, whatever your need is, we invite you to come.